Since 1971, Beauty O Books has specialized in ornithology and natural history. They're a small, family-owned and operated mail-order bookstore with the largest selection of new, used, and rare birding and ornithology books in the world and a knowledgeable staff ready to help. Find field guides, travel guides, ornithology, natural history, humor, even children's books to inspire the next generation's love of nature. Visit beautyobooks.com to find everything you're looking for and ABA members receive 10% off. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm your host, Nate Swick. Raising the profile of birding among the general public does not just mean Vermilion Flycatchers and Doritos commercials. It means that the hobby of birding is increasingly being used to sell various outdoorsy and outdoors adjacent products. And you know me, I am a student of birding in the popular culture as someone who has both a personal and professional interest in the ways in which birding and birders are portrayed by non-birders. To that end, I draw your attention to a commercial that aired in Canada for the car company Kia, no doubt trying to get a piece of that sweet, sweet birding money that Subaru has kept its goshawk-esque grip on for many years. In any case, the original TV spot features a pair of birders in their Kia who come across a pair of computer-generated snowy owls and decide that they are going to chase the birds as they fly away. And in the commercial, they are legitimately chasing the owls, as I understand it, which shows off the exceptional handling of the Kia Sorento and challenging snowy conditions. Kia, please make your checks out to the American Birding Association, not ABA. We don't want those lawyers finding a loophole. That is, in fact, what they do. Now, I say as I understand it, because I cannot find the original version of the commercial, because a group of birders in Nova Scotia pointed out that maybe the drivers should not be chasing the snowy owls, as this does paint the hobby in something of a bad light. We have been trying to improve the practice of owl ethics over the last few years, and snowy owls, more than just about any other bird, always seem to be in the middle of that. So Kia Canada, to their credit, recut re-release the commercial, taking out the part where the observers are actively chasing the birds so that it looks like, you know, a birder sees something interesting, drives through the snow using Kia's superior all-wheel drive technology. Again, Kia, that's P.O. Box 744, Delaware City, Delaware. Thanks very much. And they see a pair of snowy owls on a snag, which I'm, I'm going to let go for a moment. They pull out their binoculars and enjoy. It's, it's actually really nice. It's a good portrayal of birding as a hobby. And I think the important thing here is, is that I like the fact that birding is portrayed as this outdoor activity that is you know, pleasant, sort of low stress that anyone can do, which compared to you know the mini car commercials where like a truck is barreling through the snow to get to an isolated ski run or some cliff to jump off of. I don't know. There's loads of other less accessible outdoor activities that seem to be featured in these sorts of commercials. It's nice to see birding find its place in there. I mean, hunting could never. I love that Kia Canada made the changes in response to a bird club's criticism. So good on them for that. It is it is a really nice commercial that shows a pretty accurate portrayal of the birding experience. But I don't know. It could have used a beatboxing fox. Just saying. On the show this week, researcher Tessa Reinhardt is eavesdropping on birds, which might sound a little bit like what we all do anyway, except that she uses technology and machine learning to do it. She joins me to talk about her work after this week's Rare Birds. 
This is your primary focus for the end of February, first part of March 2022. One first record to report this week from Georgia, where the state's first and second record of Atlantic Puffin was recorded offshore last week. We haven't talked about it much, but there has been a pretty impressive southward movement of alcids this winter, in particular thick-billed myrrh and Atlantic puffin. Both are quite uncommon south of Cape Hatteras, North Carolina, which tends to be the southernmost extent of the cold water Labrador current in most years. This influx is due in part to an exceptional incursion of the Gulf Stream at the end of February. This warm water Uh, what can best be described as like a vacillating mid-ocean river. It pushed westward at the end of last month, putting the squeeze on those winter seabirds that prefer the cold water. They get essentially pushed right up against the coast where they are easier for birders to see from shore. This is especially important for a state like Georgia, whose sea boundaries are quite small. Uh, Those boundaries are determined by the closest point of land, and because of Georgia's kind of concave coastline, you don't have to go far offshore before you're actually closer to South Carolina or Florida. The extent of those boundaries have been contentious over the years. I'm sure some Georgia birders would not like me suggesting that some of their seabird records might actually be in South Carolina waters, but I digress. Those alcides are getting pressed up against the coast and squeezed southward like the last bit of toothpaste in a rolled up tube, which puts these puffins unequivocally in Georgia waters. That's all I have for you this week. Georgia birders can send their hate mail to the American Bar Association. But for the rest of you, if you want a more complete roundup, check out the Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash rba. Or to get those readies as soon as they happen, you can join our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook. If a bird calls in a forest or a swamp or a grassland and no birder is there to hear it, did that vocalization really happen? Well, obviously it did. But the bird sounds we miss contain so much information about bird behavior and populations. Wouldn't it be useful if we could hear those sounds surreptitiously? That is the work of my guest, Tessa Reinhardt. She is a researcher, a birder, and a mathematician at the University of Pittsburgh, working on developing computational models to study animals on landscape scales. In layman's terms, she eavesdrops on birds. and She uses that information to inform conservation decisions. Hello, Tessa. How are you? Hey, Nate. I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Of course. Uh, you were one of our very first virtual bird club uh, participants, uh, victims, uh, perhaps I should <laughs> say. Uh, so it's great to, great to have you back again and uh, talk a little bit about your, your work with these uh, recording units and, and all this cool stuff. Um, can, you, can you talk a little bit about how this all works? In my mind, there are like a bunch of steps and we can talk about them sort of separately. There's like, you have to teach the algorithm to learn the bird vocals, you have to develop the devices, and then you have to put them out there. Um, Which one of those comes first? Do they all kind of evolve together? Mm -hmm. It's definitely um, a cycle. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Usually we would start with a basic algorithm, and then we deploy the recorders out in the woods, Mm -hmm. um, get the recorders back, and try our algorithm, see what it's good at, what it's not good mm-hmm. at, and tweak it to refine it. Yeah. I, I, let's, let's just start like from the very, very beginning. There are birds out there making noises, and they can, they can give us useful information. How do we solve this problem of not having humans out there listening to them? The, the way we're approaching it, mm-hmm. obviously, there are so many different ways that you could, you could tackle this problem, but we use these little autonomous acoustic recorders um the brand of them is audio moth 
Uh, they're made by a company called Open Acoustic Devices, and they're basically a little circuit board that can fit on a battery pack with three AA batteries. Hmm. You put them out in the woods, and on a single battery charge, they can record about 150 hours or more. So not quite a week, but uh, so do you have to like go out there and and keep pulling data from them so they can't be too far out in the woods or, or can they can they be in places where people can't get to for months we we'll put them pretty far out in the woods we we don't have them record continuously mm-hmm. okay. usually like a couple hours in the morning and maybe an hour that at would night. make sense there's um, a lot of dead time uh, in the middle of the day it would just be a waste yeah 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 they so one one of the advantages is how infrequently you have to change anything like change the batteries check them usually we'll put them out say in early may and then take them back in in july and they'll last about that long so it's essentially a whole breeding season yeah that you get to listen and eavesdrop on these birds with only two visits yeah what are you listening for and i I suppose it depends on what a sort of research you are using these for. Like, I, I would think the application for this would be for pretty much anyone who's doing any sort of monitoring project with any bird species or even just like general what birds are here. How specific and how general can these little devices be? Mm-hmm. The, the what birds are here problem is yeah. the one we're typically trying to tackle. Um, but people do use these recorders for all sorts of things, uh, studying behavior. The sorts of things that we apply them to are understanding and monitoring habitat restorations to mm-hmm. um, see how birds and other animals respond to both like human disturbances and human restorations to try to improve the quality of habitat for these animals. Yeah, so you're listening for certain species of birds that might be target species for whatever sort of habitat restoration you're you're doing. Yeah, exactly. Oh, cool. Um, so let let's do the the fun stuff. Um, these the programs that you're devising are able to effectively identify birds. I mean, you're you're putting these out in the woods for however many months. It's not like someone is coming back and listening to this, listening to these tapes. Um, for hours upon hours upon hours, you need to have some way to automate that process. That's right. Yeah. The amount of audio data we record in one season, I mean, uh, this season we're going to have over a thousand recorders out Yeah, and they'll capture um, a thousand hours, <laughs> hundreds. Yeah. Like hundreds of thousands of hours of data yeah. we have in our, our library. So yeah. we do need an algorithm to automate listening to it. It would just be um, impossible to at least to listen to everything. Yeah. Um, typically, the algorithms will be used to rank recordings by how okay. likely they are to contain a species we're interested in. Then we, as people, go in and listen to those highly ranking recordings um, to verify that the species actually mm-hmm. is present. Yeah. So you have to make sure that the the algorithm is is correct, right? I mean, you have to train it to to start. And like, how how accurate is it? It depends on the application. Yeah. Um, probably the most accurate one I've trained was for black-billed cuckoos. Okay. Uh, I just did that one recently. And That's nice because that is a bird that is, I, I, I don't know about you. Well, you, you're, you're from further north than I am. Like up around the Great Lakes, they're more common. But down here, 
that's a tough bird to find. And they're not very loud either. They are tough. They're they're secretive. They're yeah. really hard for people to survey, actually, if you yeah, don't bad. have playback. A lot of people will survey for them using playback because mm-hmm. they just vocalize yeah, so yeah. softly and infrequently. Um, but yeah, that that classifier, when I listen to like the top hour of recordings that it ranked as the most likely to contain cuckoos, uh, 95% of them had a cuckoo in wow. them. Which is pretty, pretty exceptional. Actually, yeah. I was I was quite pleased. Way with better that. than my track record. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if, if only I knew how many times I made a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, this 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 kind of beg that question. You know, with humans doing this sort of field research, obviously you would love to have an ace birder out there doing this work all the time. But you know, it's a volunteer. A lot of these times they're volunteers, and they are varying skill levels. Um, so the data that you have that you're using with humans, like it, it's probably pretty good, but it's not really good. And you want to be as precise as possible with some of these, you know, conservation efforts that you're wanting to, you're wanting to use this data for. Mm -hmm. A nice thing about having these autonomously recorded data is we keep them forever, like Mm -hmm. museum specimens, um, you can reanalyze them in the future to ask different questions, to study different species. Um, so it's it's a nice just piece of data to have forever. Yeah. And I guess as you as the algorithm, as the machine learning gets better, as it improves, then you could potentially even come back and run some of this again and see if it missed anything before that you've that you're seeing now. Absolutely. Yeah. Unlike Unlike birders, we can, you know, we can estimate how good the algorithms are and right. compare them to, to new algorithms. Um, you know, you don't get a second chance with a point count, nope. but you can with the, with the autonomous. Yeah. I almost want to take one of these with me on like a breeding bird survey and just like test yourself and see exactly how many birds you're missing. Uh, it's probably way more than I would like to admit, to be honest. You know, I actually did bring one of these recordings oh, man. with me, um, but I never listened to it because <laughs> <laughs> uh, because it takes so long to, yeah. to listen, do all that listening. I guess I should apply classifier. There right? you go. There you go. So like, um, um, what are the what are the more difficult songs for these algorithms to learn? Like what sort of hangups do they have when you're trying to apply this process to them? In a lot of cases, they're the same songs that are hard for people to learn. Mm, interesting. There's songs that don't have a lot of information in them or calls. Um, simple things like warbler chips, for instance. Mm-hmm. They're tough for an algorithm to learn, especially if you're using the same algorithm to identify songs as you are to identify those calls. Mm. Uh, the resolution of the spectrogram that we use the algorithm on isn't that fine. Yeah. So, so basically, you're just getting a, I guess, an image, right? It's you turn the sound into an image, which is sort of like how Merlin does their sound recording thing. It's got to be somewhat, somewhat similar to that. Yeah. It's maybe we should talk a little bit. Yeah. Let's do that. Instagram <laughs> is. Yeah. Maybe. Um, maybe let's go back a little bit. <laughs> okay. Um, right. So, when we are applying these algorithms, which typically we call classifiers. Mm-hmm to our data, we're not actually using them to 
assess audio data. Mm -hmm. We convert the sounds into spectrograms, which are visual representations of sound. The spectrogram is sort of like sheet music. If you've ever, um, if you know how to read sheet music, I guess that helps. Yeah. So time is on left to right on the horizontal axis and low pitch sounds like an owl hooting would be lower in the image, whereas high pitch sounds like a warbler singing are higher in the image. Mm -hmm. And each bird sound looks different on the spectrogram. So what our algorithms do is they pick up on the particular patterns of each species sound. I know there was a long period where people were not super familiar with what a spectrogram was. I always thought it was interesting because the old Chandler Robbins golden field guide that um, you might be too young to to remember it, but it was like my first field guide. And um, they had spectrograms in it, which I thought was really cool because I was like a musician as well. And so I could read music a little bit and like super useful. But then they kind of fell out of favor and now people don't use them anymore. But now people who are, you know, dabbling in bird recording um, even using like their smartphone, anything, something as simple as that, and uploading them to eBird, and eBird turns it into a spectrogram, which is really cool. So now people are like familiar with spectrograms, more more familiar with them than they were before. There's like a big gap, a generation gap uh, between that. Um, so people might be familiar if you, if someone wants to see an example, a great example of spectrograms, just go to the Macaulay Library and just search for a common species like Northern Cardinal and, uh, yeah, don't look at the photos. Look at the audio recordings. And you just get a load of spectrograms, a big sweeping weep, weep, weep sounds because uh, Northern Cardinals always have nice, clean recordings. I, I just think they're really cool. I think they're really useful. I'm really glad that they are coming back into favor. I don't know if you have the same sort of love for spectrograms. I'm sure you do now if you, if you didn't before. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. They're They're awesome. And I think it's a cool party trick as you start to learn yeah. how to how a sound corresponds to the spectrogram like you can easily pick up on what bird is singing just by looking at the picture oh man that is a good party trick <laughs> have to try that out yeah have uh, people test you on uh on because you know for some birds it's it's really important to know what the shape is too i guess red crossbills and whatnot people record red crossbills that's a big thing now and all the little Jips and jupes of the red crossbow flight call are all kind of they all sound the same at least to my ear they sound very similar uh, maybe i can pick out that they're different and i but i don't know that i'd be able to say why they're different um, but you look at the little image and like some are shaped like a w and some are like a j and or backwards j it, it's it's neat to see that stuff and to use that to you know put that into your i don't know your toolkit your bird identification toolkit mm -hmm. um do you find yourself using like birding by ear more and kind of your regular birding or having an appreciation for the different slightly different subtle differences in, in bird vocalizations since you've been you know not only hearing these things but looking at them on a computer screen with your with your work yeah i think the spectrogram gives you new tools to understand how to identify sounds mm -hmm. um, it, because people are really visual creatures so being able to see the sound mm -hmm. and start to pick up on patterns that are almost too fast for our ear to hear. Yeah. Um, it, it does, it has helped me improve my ear birding skills. Yeah. What are some of the coolest things that you have found, you know, putting these recording units out into the field and uh, anything unexpected that has come back from your work there? 
Unexpected. The funniest thing that I can think of is um, sometimes we'll hear our technicians picking up the recorders. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, So, yeah, we we get unexpected things all the time, I think. But there, you know, I've never found a vagrant. Um, Oh, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, all, All these sorts of interactions you notice mm-hmm. like when i'm listening to a lot of recordings uh i'll pick up on you know generally what the soundscape is like at each point um and then i'll hear something unusual like robins giving alarm calls like oh there's something happening in this recording yeah and you go a little farther in the recording and then you hear like people walking into the woods so those <laughs> robins they they don't usually give alarm calls unless uh, a person right. is coming in this case. Um, yeah. What are some of the coolest research projects that you have been sort of involved with uh, that have used your work to accomplish conservation natural history goals? The biggest one that I'm involved in right now is this very large scale forest management and restoration project project in Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Um, So something to know about Pennsylvania is that around the turn of the 20th century, most of its forests were cut down. Um, So the forests that have grown back, all the trees are a similar age, and there's not as much diversity in habitat types and in the structure of the forest. So this project is taking baseline recordings of what the forest sounds like, mm-hmm. what species we hear just in these regular unmanaged forests, then applying different forestry techniques like selectively cutting down trees or removing invasive species. And we'll return to those sites periodically after that management to see how bird communities are responding. So it's a really fascinating like slice of time as well as it feels like I'm contributing to knowledge of how to best right the wrongs I guess that yeah. have been done to these forests. Yeah, it's neat. I imagine that over time you could go from something like hearing I don't know Dick Sissels and Bob White to chat and prairie warbler to summer tanager as the forest gets older and older and moves through the successional stages and um that would be really cool i mean it takes probably a longer time than any of our life lifetimes to really move all the way through but i bet you know even in something like five to ten years you could probably see some really subtle changes Mm -hmm. about five to ten years is how much time it takes for a golden-winged warbler to return to one of these plots, actually. Oh, nice. So it's, the the process of succession is pretty slow. Yeah. Uh, But, you know, people always say the best time to start a long-term project was 10 years ago. (laughs) Right. (laughs) uh, We're we're getting started. Yeah, that's all you can do, really. Yeah. Um, So does, are there any challenges with potentially like determining numbers of species? Like, can you, can it identify two different individuals that are sort of singing at the same time? What does that look different on a spectrogram than it, than a single species might? It does look different. 
um, if there are two individuals of multiple species, mm-hmm. if they're not overlapping too much, like basically if your ears can differentiate them, right? It it's probable that you can differentiate them on a spectrogram too. Um, for individuals of the same species, that can be tough. Um, you can often tell by looking at a recording that there are multiple individuals because one will be singing louder, so its, mm-hmm. it's signal will be darker or more contrasting mm, on yeah. the spectrogram. Um, something else that you can do to count individual birds is not use a single mic, but instead use multiple synchronized microphones. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the sound will arrive at each microphone at a different time. Yeah, and based on that delay, you can pinpoint the bird and pinpoint multiple birds singing at the same time to not only get an idea of how many there are, but also, you know, what the boundaries of their territories are. Right. Yeah, that, that certainly makes sense. Sort of like almost like a little Doppler a Doppler effect with birds singing there. Um, is that typically how these uh, units are are applied? Do you have like a little array in a given area or is it just one spot and then, I don't know, 500 meters away, another spot, and then 500 meters away, another spot? Is it, I guess it depends on the research, the needs, research needs of the project. How are they, how are they typically utilized? Typically, we place the recorders far enough apart that the same bird won't be heard on multiple recorders, mm-hmm. which for acoustic localization, you would place the arrays close enough so that the one bird could be heard on multiple recorders. Um, but for monitoring purposes, we don't want to overcount birds or double sure. count them. Um, so we'll, we'll place them usually at least 250 meters apart. And um, in a grid or like a stratified sample, so that they're roughly uh, grid spaced, yeah. Hmm. And what about um, the potential for for mimicry, things uh-huh. like uh, northern mockingbirds or or blue jays or birds that are sort of not- noteworthy for being able to to mimic other species? Are you able to pick up the differences? Does the algorithm pick that up, or is that something that it's still learning? If they confuse a person. They would confuse the algorithm. Yeah, the the algorithms are not magic. Um, (laughs) I hate to break it to you. I know, I know. (laughs) I'm putting all my hopes in technology. (laughs) Um, You know, when you've worked with it long enough, you you start to understand its limitations. And certainly mimicry can be a problem. Uh, We luckily don't have a lot of mockingbirds at our sites. Yeah. But... I'm sure that would be a challenge. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> in, in theory, do you have any international use of these? This project are you are they putting these uh, these units in like uh, the Amazon or the Andes or some sort of cool place where there's like I don't know potentially dozens of birds singing in a dawn chorus that it needs to pick through? Um, and how does it fare in those situations? Mm. We do have some really exciting uses for these outside of. Pennsylvania and outside the United States, uh, probably the coolest one is not actually recording birds. It's um, a project to understand how frog populations oh, are right. okay. recovering. Um, so there's this there's this fungus called chytrid fungus that's mm-hmm. caused decline in a lot of frog populations world, worldwide, and uh, 
we're recording in Panama and in Brazil to understand how populations are rebounding, if they are recovering at all, after they have been exposed to this fungus. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'd heard about that virus. I know that it's really done a number on um, on amphibians and in the neotropics in particular. Um, I, as a kid, I remember reading about golden toads in Costa Rica. And that, unfortunately, I think is extinct. Oh, well. well oh, we're not. Oh, yeah, you're going you're gonna to break some news. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, one of the awesome uses for these recorders is um, for for finding rare species that mm-hmm. call infrequently. Yeah, I would imagine so. Yeah. Um, and there is there is a species that is was thought at one point to be either critically endangered or extinct in the wild that one of our classifiers was able to find a population of. Yeah, I, w- I think that it would be like frog vocalizations might be easier than birds because they're less variable. I mean, you know, I, I'm thinking of the frogs that I hear around here. They're um, incessant and they're like they're constantly calling uh, long but long periods and it's it's pretty much the same sound there's not a lot of variation um, so I think it would might be easier for it to pick it up than birds birds are kind of a are kind of difficult you know because because there is that that variation among individuals and among populations and um, how does the how does the machine learning deal with that it just it just take just takes time just got to feed that data in there uh, for it to pick that stuff up it's a blessing and a curse to have yeah. simpler vocalizations. <laughs> yeah. um, the type of algorithm we use for bird sounds is called a convolutional neural network. And it's really good at picking up on songs that have a lot of information in them, mm-hmm. like complex, sing-songy sorts of things. Um, whereas frogs, you're right, they do tend to have simpler sounds and they're often repetitive. Mm-hmm. So one of the algorithms we use for those, it picks up on sounds based on the repeat interval in a certain frequency. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, so that's that was the that's our big frog algorithm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it's not like wasting its uh the battery power, you know, picking up four hours of frog song, constant frog song every every night. Or or does it, <laughs> or does it like constantly like because I like the frogs in my the pond in my neighborhood like I hear them all night long, mm-hmm. which is cool. But I would imagine if you're trying to you know put a recording unit out into a place where you're going to get a lot of great great sounds, and you know you don't want to come back for six months, that battery's going to drain because <laughs> it's picking up these frogs all all the time. Okay, so there there's. Triggered recording itself is when you um, don't record until you hear a certain sound. Mm -hmm. And generally, we don't use triggered recording. Okay. Um, When I say a repeat interval, I mean like the actual individual. Okay. Okay. Um, Yeah. So the frogs will will have like a pulsing Mm -hmm. sound. It's almost like a vibrating sound that um, can sometimes even be too fast for our ear to pick up on. Mm. But that's the kind of thing that a yeah, signal better. processing algorithm really it's be a lot better than that. a human ear. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'm sure I, when we talked at the uh, Virtual Bird Club two years ago, my goodness, um, someone asked uh, whether or not an app 
was coming <laughs> to uh, to use, you know, to to apply this to uh, conventional birding. Merlin has effectively sort of done that now. Cornelab Ornithology's Merlin came out in the inter- intervening period. Is that similar to what you're doing? Or is it more, it's not really commercial use, but it's not necessarily scientific use. Um, is it is a similar sort of process that what you're doing, or is there some kind of important differences that are that are not the same? Uh, I think it's really similar, actually. Pretty much all of the algorithms for bird sound identification mm-hmm. are using convolutional neural networks. Um, so same principle, applying this image recognition algorithm to a spectrogram. Maybe the main differences are, yeah, that Merlin is an app. You know, it mm-hmm. has this nice user interface. Yeah. Um, makes it really easy for birders to to interact with and understand sound identification. Our application is to run through, you know, tens of thousands of hours of recording. Mm-hmm. So we're usually, we don't use an app. We are like doing this all on yeah. a computing cluster. You don't have to mess with the the user. Yeah. <laughs> you are you are the user. You're, it's it's uh, ro- more robust, perhaps. Right. You. It can be. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> one one reason that we an, another difference maybe is that because this is a scientific application, we have all of our data and code and models open source. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's an important part of of any scientific pursuit to be able to peer review other people's work. So we make all of our stuff publicly available. And hopefully one benefit of that is that it makes it easier for other researchers to use the models as well. Mm -hmm. Do you use the data that regular birders pick up on the Macaulay Library to help train your machine learning algorithms? So we can't use data from Macaulay Library Mm -hmm. for the most part. It's just um, not licensed to be used for that purpose, right. but we use data from xenocanto.org. Oh, right on. Okay. Yes. That's like, if you've ever posted a wood thrush recording to Xenocanto, <laughs> we have it and we're using You're it. You're using Thank it. You. There you go. That's right. <laughs> Tessa Reinhardt is a researcher at the University of Pittsburgh. Her work on ARUs was uh, featured in a 2020 issue of Birding Magazine. And she was one of our virtual bird club guests back in the early days. You can watch her presentation. It's still on YouTube if you like, um, in the early days of the pandemic. And please keep recording birds and uploading them to Xenocanto if you want to help her out with her work. I'm sure she would appreciate that as well. You can find so much more on our website. I'll have a link to that. Um, thanks so much, Tessa. It was great to, great to talk to you again. Thanks, Nate. It was great to chat. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, you can support it by supporting the AVA with your membership. There are many benefits like magazines, discounts to partners like Beautio Books and the Cornet Lab of Ornithology and opportunities to travel with us. Get information at apa.org slash join. Special shout outs this week to Garrison Doctor of Lafayette, Colorado, Maryland Blue and family of Bellingham, Washington and Karen Evans and the Evans of Bakersfield, California. All of them recently joined the ABA and noted the American Birding Podcast as a reason for doing so. Thank you all so much. It really does mean a lot. And I hope you enjoy all the other benefits that you get with ABA membership. Technical production is by John Lowry, who was disappointed to learn that the Kia commercial did not refer to the playful New Zealand parrot known for ripping up cars and wonders if that was an oversight or some sort of intentional snub. Hard to say. 
Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese, who are glad Kia is promoting birding, but are still waiting for that lucrative contract from Swanda. You can find us online at ABA.org and on social media, most everywhere is American Birding Association. On Twitter, though, we are at ABA. Look, the money is not in birds. Birds can't buy sponsorships. It's in optics, which is why I think one of the big German optics companies needs to develop some sort of eight by front windshield for birding on the road. Uh, maybe look to a local automobile company. I feel like it's only inevitable that we would get the Mercedes Benz. <sighs> Who writes this? Questions, comments can come to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Till next week. <laughs>